At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 681st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who believes that home gardens are more efficient and effective than the industrial food system. We're talking with David Fisher about growing it yourself. David is primarily a botanist. He received his BS in biology from North Carolina State University and an MS and PhD in botany from the University of Wisconsin. He then served as a research scientist at the USD Forest Experiment Station in in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and was a Humboldt Fellow at the University of Göttingen, Germany. Prior to joining the faculty of Maharishi International University, he was a professor and researcher at the University of Hawaii. Since leaving MIU, he now devotes his time to sustainability research and writing. Welcome to the show today, David. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. Yes, yes, me too, especially about the topic. So yeah. I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I grew up in the countryside, which was perfect for me. I was the boy professor botanist. You know, I've had experience at three great land-grant universities mm-hmm. and was gardening since I was about 12 years old. All of that experience, you know, three really good botany departments, and then 25 years here at MIU, which is focused on consciousness-based education. Mm-hmm. All that time in Germany, the time in Hawaii, all of that sort of prepared me for what happened when COVID struck. Mm. I had already been working on a book, which I was going to call Human Nature, All is One Word, done a lot of research on it. And then COVID hit and I thought, well, it really would be a good idea if everybody had a victory garden. So I just switched gears and said, all right, I'm going to work. I'm, I'm going to write about that. And then once I got into it, I just made this astonishing discovery, which was what you've already said. Home gardens are not just a little, actually, but far more efficient per pound of food consumed than the industrial food system and do not incur the literally trillions of dollars in external costs that the food system incurs. So it's like in C, no contest, but almost nobody knows it. And the reason is there are lots of books and articles out there, online stories about how great home gardens are and how much they produce all this luscious food and so forth. But what I found was that nobody had ever thought to compare it point by point, pound for pound, energy for energy, productivity per unit of land to the industrial food system. So I did that. And that's, I was just blown away by what I found. It's not even remotely close. It's not even remotely close. Home gardens are so much more efficient. Got it. And 
you used a term called external costs. Oh, yes. <laughs> so let's kind of unpack that a little bit so that people can start to understand what you mean by that. Okay, externalities. It's a well-known term in business. Externalities are external costs. These are costs that a business or an industry incurs but does not pay for. So I'll give you an example. Being right here in Iowa, Des Moines gets part of their water from the Des Moines River and also from the Fox River. This is Iowa, the most agricultural state. And of course, a lot of the fertilizer that goes on the fields ends up in the water in mm. those rivers. Mm -hmm. Nitrate is the big problem. Nitrate in the water is toxic at some point, especially for babies, much more so for babies, actually. So you have to remove it if you're going to use it for your drinking water, which Des Moines does part of the year. They, they rely on it. So Des Moines has the largest nitrate removal plant in the entire world. Okay. Wow. Who pays for that? Not the farmers, not anybody in the food business. It's the taxpayers that cost that, that facility cost millions of dollars to build, to maintain, and now even to upgrade. So that is an external cost. It's a cost that was caused by the food system, but they didn't pay for the damage. And that's just one tiny example. There are far more health, environmental, social, economic, the list just goes on. And that's why it adds up to trillions of dollars. So in other words, what this means is the price that you pay at a supermarket checkout counter is only a small fraction, maybe 20, 30% at the most mm -hmm. of the real cost of the food. All those other costs are offloaded by the food industry onto other segments of society in many different ways. This is why we have such cheap food, because the industry doesn't pay for the full cost. Neither do you at the checkout counter, but you sure do pay in a lot of other ways. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about what is wrong with the industrial food system. And I think a big piece of this is the externalities that don't get counted, right? Yes. So let's just say, let's just pick the most obvious one for me, which is the degree of overweight and obesity in this mm. country. Mm -hmm. About 70% overweight, 40% obese. Wow. A, a result of that is over a third of the country has either diabetes or prediabetes. That alone costs the country about $2 trillion a year. Wow. Just, just that. Okay. And yeah. even that's a small part of the, of the external costs. So you're, you're connecting obesity to our industrial food system. That's How, right. How's that connected? Okay. Because the food system exists for the purpose of getting people to buy as much food as possible. And so there are billions and billions of dollars spent to get people to buy the most common food on the American diet, which is the highly processed foods, mm. which are very loaded with calories, with sugars, with salt, with fat, with lots of carbohydrates. And it is just pummeled toward the consumers and the consumers have taken it. They're very convinced. Mm -hmm. It's in fact, they've made the food in many cases, almost addictive. And the advertising is so convincing, even to people who are already way overweight and just really need to do something better. They just keep gobbling that stuff up. Yeah. So that is a result of our food system. That's just one result. That's just one part of the health results. You could go on about a lot of other negative let's, health results. Let's talk about the environmental impact 
real quickly because this is a somewhat of an environmental show. Okay. So going back to that example of Des Moines, that nitrate that doesn't get removed by the nitrate removal plant in Des Moines mm -hmm. flows down the Mississippi, and then you have that toxic zone around the base of the Mississippi River. Mm. That does enormous damage to the fishing industry there, messes up the ecology there, costs, again, millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. Then you've got fertilizer messing up groundwater and surface water all over the Midwest since we use so much of it here. So that's pesticides, okay? pesticides and herbicides with the environmental damage there. There are many, many other environmental damages. Well, like food miles, right? Okay. When you get into food miles, that's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> yes. So in our system, including even right here in Iowa, between farm and fork, it's 1,500 miles that the food yep. travels. And it changes hand about 12 to 15 times during that. Wow. That I didn't know. Yeah. And of course, a lot of that is transported by the 18 wheelers. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of energy spent just doing that. Now, the interesting thing is the industry has fired back on this and they say, we've done our studies. We found that if you get all of your food by pickup trucks going to farmers markets and you add all that up, it actually costs more gasoline and more energy than our 18 wheelers, which pack in how many tons of food into one truck, you know, and even though if it goes 1500 miles, it's still, uh, it calls for less energy. Okay? Interesting. So you get into those kinds of arguments and those studies are difficult to interpret because they do things like assume that the trucks are completely filled. They're not often and all kinds of other factors. Yeah. So do they cost more in terms of energy or not? So food miles, but of course, <laughs> that's where with home gardens, you're not talking about miles. You're talking about a few feet. Feet, exactly. Yes. yes. That flow chart, I don't know if you read all the way to the end, but it also showed that, yes, indeed, it does take far more energy to produce a pound of food with the industrial food system than it does with a home garden. Far, far more energy. And in fact, it takes about eight times as much energy to produce the amount of energy that you actually get in a bite of average food. The industrial food energy. system. Yeah, with the industrial food system. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's pretty impactful in itself. But, you know, one of the things that we hadn't touched on was the nutritional value of what I like to call manufactured food. Mm -hmm. It's not fresh food that we're getting most of the time. It's this repackaged, you said changed hands 15 times into, you know, it goes from one thing to the next to the next. And then all of a sudden there's this manufactured food that we're munching on that is, it, you said they claim it could be addictive. I, my research shows that it actually is addictive. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. You know? Well, as I pointed out in the book, I like basketball. I watch NBA games. And when those food commercials come on, my goodness, it makes me want to jump up and go out to the nearest fast food place and get one up. Somewhere. Right. You know, and, and it does taste good, but it's, as we know, it's not good for you. It's not nutrition. Right. And, and for the longtime listeners of the podcast, you've heard me talk a lot about it, the nutritional value of manufactured food or the lack of nutritional value. So we could go, that's another deep rabbit hole, but I want to talk about your book because okay. uh, this, is, this is the bridge between the industrial food system and our backyard. And your book is called Just Grow It Yourself, Home Gardens Outshine the Industrial Food System. And you claim that a home garden needs only 1% of the land it takes the industrial food system to feed a person for a year or 
per acre of land, home gardens can feed 100 times as many people as the industrial food system. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Okay, that's the statement that even sustainable food enthusiasts, when I tell them that, they're like the deer in the headlights. They cannot <laughs> absorb that. It's just like, that can't be right. You can't be, you can't be serious about that. But I am. So I will unpack that a little bit, sort of step by step. Two years ago, when COVID started, I decided to see if I could live for one month just on my garden. So in other words, I redid what Morgan Spurlock did back in 2004 with Supersize Me. Do you remember that book? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I did a garden Supersize Me. Okay? I ate, even though I wasn't a vegetarian for that month, I ate only from my garden. I didn't eat everything in the garden. I just ate what I needed to have three full meals a day for 30 days. And I kept meticulous records of everything I ate down to the 10th of an ounce. And wow. also exactly how much ground, how much area it took to grow that. So, and by the way, like Morgan Spurlock, I got a, a physical exam before and after. And one of the interesting things that happened is my cholesterol, which wasn't very high anyway, it was just a little bit into the a little bit too high range, dropped mm -hmm. 15 points in just one month. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I've heard that before. I've heard yeah. that before. Yeah. So anyways, I thought, well, if I can do that for one month, how much land would it take me to grow enough to be, to eat only from my garden to sustain me well for a year? So with my calculations, I found 35 by 40 feet, okay? just 35 by 40 feet. That's like 1400 so square feet. It's 1400 square feet. Yes. Wow. And and so the next year I grew that garden and then I kept records of everything I harvested from it. It was a little over a thousand pounds. Okay. And in terms of portions or servings, that was even more than enough to sustain me for a year. However, I made one mistake and that is I had assumed because I was trying to emphasize calorie rich foods that I would have enough in terms of calories and protein to last me for a year. But when I did all the calculations of that, I found that I was short. Okay. So in other words, even though I had enough portions, I didn't have enough calories and protein to sustain my basic metabolic rate, as it's called. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the drawing board, so to speak, and I said, well, if I planted in just this same space at the same production rate per foot row, could I still do a year's supply in 1,400 square feet? And then I found that if I planted a lot more of the really high calorie and also in some cases, high protein foods, I could do that. That is corn and dried beans. Okay. They are about 1600 calories per pound. Sweet potatoes around 500. Everything else goes down from that. And just by planting more of the calorie and protein rich foods, and also counting because no vegetable produces vitamin B12 and you have to have it, Mm -hmm. So I always say, all right, a couple of backyard hens for a couple of eggs a day. So I included that mainly for the, for the vitamin, but also it helps with the protein a little bit. And I found that, yes, I could grow enough on 1,400 square feet to last me not only three full meals a day, but also to meet my calorie and protein needs. Now, I'm not the biggest person in the world, but it's in the ballpark. Okay. So 1,400 square feet, and this is the other really big figure that most people are unaware of. It takes about three acres to feed an American for a year. Yeah. And how, did you, how did you come up with that number? Okay. I went to various information sources, five different sources that say that, including all the cropland 
everything that goes into raising our food is about a billion acres. Mm -hmm. Our population is 332 million. So you can see that's about a third. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's three acres. Okay. To feed one person, one American for a year. Okay. Wow. So, so you just, so you just took the amount of acres that we have in this country. Right. Under cultivation. And in, also the pasture, because you have to grow the grains yep. and so forth to feed the cows and the hay to feed the cows and all of that. Okay. All of it. And then you just did the math. You just divide all of that land by our population and you get mm -hmm. three acres per person. And then just recently, there are you aware of a, a resource called Our World in Data? No. Our World in Data. You should look it up. Anyway, it's now run by a team of scientists at the University of Oxford in England. They had a figure there, which I did, was not aware of earlier, and they found, they found the same thing, yes, about, and, and in their case, it's actually about 3.2 acres per person mm -hmm. in North America to feed one American. Okay? Yeah. By the way, much of the rest of the world, it's more like a half an acre. So I, uh, I suspect a big part of that is because of all the waste, right? That's where it gets so fascinating to look at that flow chart. Yeah, there is amount of, a certain amount of food waste, you know, about 40% of all of our food, the industry even says is wasted. Yeah, 50% of produce, but you lose a lot between production and the end of the line, which is actually consumed because of exports that go out. Some goes into storage. A lot is is lost on respiration. There's a lot of water loss and and then just all the handling losses and so forth. Mm -hmm. okay? That's not food waste per per se, but there are big segments that drop out. A lot goes to industry. That flow chart was from late 1990s, I think. And since then, of course, we have far more of our food going to biofuels, you know, biodiesel mm -hmm. and ethanol. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that the 86% loss between farm and fork is even much greater now. But I couldn't find an update. I'd love to find an update on that food. Uh, food flow chart. So the chart that you mentioned, and I'm sure this is in your book, right? No, it's not. I didn't. I was unaware of it in, in the book. Ah, oh, very good. So it's on your website. It's, it's on the website. Yes. The chart is called Material Flow in the U.S. Food System. Right. And it it's a it's an amazing breakdown. What's what's your website? It's justgrowityourself.com, and where that chart appears is on a blog called The Evidence. Okay. This is, you. if you're listening to this podcast, go there and check this out. And we'll also have a link in the show notes. Okay. So now we have the, the industrial number. And I think we kind of touched on the home gardener number earlier, but how do you compare those two? Okay. 1,400 square feet is just about exactly 1% of the number of square feet in three acres. I don't have that number on the at the tip of my tongue right now, but uh -huh. that's what it is. And here's the interesting thing. My production rate was only about 0.7 pounds of food per square foot. From your urban homestead, mm -hmm. I found your rate of production was over twice that, about 1.6 pounds of food per square foot. So wow. that figure of 1% is actually very conservative. And 1%, also, what is that figure, 1%? Okay, it takes 1%, it takes home gardens, 1% of the land to feed a person like myself for a year that it takes the industrial food system to feed one person for a year. And again, That's we're 1 just 1% of the land. We're just doing the math on that. 
yes, it's just pure, straightforward math. And I've so, been over these figures again and again and uh -huh. again, and I have not been able to find any serious error. Okay. So basically, basically what we're talking about is three acres, 3.2 acres is approximately 135,000 square feet. And what we're saying here is that it takes 135,000 square feet in the industrial food system to feed one person. That's right. And you've done research and found that with 1,400 square feet, you can feed you. That's right. Amazing. That's exactly right. And that that really points to the the productivity and the abundance of nature. Well, it does. It does. But it gets, there are so many rabbit holes to go down here. Uh, um, all right, let's just compare, which is what I, I talked to a, um, an agricultural economist at Iowa State University. He said, well, yeah, but how about the actual production in the field? And let's say per square foot in an industrial operation, let's say to produce vegetables compared to the home garden. Well, there it's much closer. Right. But even there, the ind even industry admits that home gardens per square foot produce about twice as much in the way of produce as the industrial system. So that's a lot closer, okay? But what you have to do is compare the system as a whole. You can't take out just one little part of it and say, well, mm -hmm. really it's like this. It's the system as a whole that has produced all of those horrendous health problems and a wide variety of other problems wide variety of other problems. So that's why the food system is not as efficient as most people think it is. And I bring in the two pictures that most people think of. The farmer on the tractor out in the field, holy cow, one farmer can do the work of a small army of gardeners, right? It's mm -hmm. so obvious, right? No, it's not. <laughs> in fact, it's just the opposite. The other thing is, well, why should I go into a garden and dig and flail around with a hoe. And all I have to do is just run out to the grocery store. It's so convenient. They mm. have 44,000 items in the average grocery wow. store, 44,000 different, 44, different objects of food that you can choose from in the average grocery store. It's so simple, 15 minutes, right? Well, it's like, not really, because they don't realize how much they're paying in many other ways and how much the whole yeah. country is paying and how it's running the country down. It is not sustainable, folks. It's not even close. So the system, you know, the, the food system, the industry, they're not stupid. They know that it's really destructive. So they keep coming up with, this is the other fascinating part of the story, their own solutions, which is more corporate control and more high-tech fixes. So you get precision engineering where you have satellites and drones and GPS to direct, you know, chemical applications across vast monocultures. Okay? Mm -hmm. And you have fake foods of all kinds, more high-tech foods, more high-tech foods, more high-tech. And this is what they call the, res the big reset. The World Economic Forum is trying, is pushing this and some others. Okay? Well, I'm pushing for exactly the opposite because it's so, so, so vastly more efficient to do home gardens. And there's a wide, wide, wide variety of other benefits that we haven't even mentioned that the industrial food system cannot touch. In fact, I hate to say it, but even our local food farms, the small local farms, which mm -hmm. I'm all for, even they cannot bring the breadth of benefits that home gardens can. So you're not talking about specifically local food. You're talking about the actual backyard or front yard garden. I call it the uh, most local food. Okay. 
your right. backyard garden, or it yeah. could be a community garden. It might be a block or two away or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that yeah. way we can control what's going into it. Yeah. And yeah, uh, but you, you see, it, the, the benefit doesn't even stop there. In fact, the primary benefit is not even the food. The primary benefit is connecting people to the land, mm -hmm. to themselves, and to other humans. By growing, putting seeds into the ground, getting your fingers in the soil, growing it up, harvesting it, prepping it, and eating it, you make connection after connection after connection after connection, which is even more valuable than the actual food itself. So that's why I always say it has to be done the right way. You can't be out there you know, sweating and cursing at the insects and whatnot. You have to do it in a way that's enjoyable for you and it has to be voluntary. Okay? If you punish kids by making them pull weeds in the garden, guess what they're gonna think about gardens? They're gonna grow up yeah. hating it. You can't do right. that. It has to be enjoyable. It absolutely must be enjoyable. So you have to manage it so that it is enjoyable. And if you do that, you get so many benefits. So let's talk about your book a little bit more. What is your main message then? I mean, I think we've been dancing around it, but what's the message here? The message is home gardens are far more efficient at producing and can, let's say it this way, home gardens are far more efficient per pound of food consumed than the industrial food system. That's a slight variation from what I say on the back of the book. Mm -hmm. And the reason is at the time the book was published, I had not yet seen that flowchart from the University of Michigan. They have a certain figure of food that's produced at the beginning, starting right in the fields. And then at the far end, there's another figure of all that food that starts, how much of it actually ends up being eaten by the customers, only 14%. Wow. Okay. So what home gardens do is they make an end run around all of that. They don't have all of that stuff that drops out all along the way. It goes directly, basically from your garden to your mouth almost. So that's why it's so incredibly more efficient. And by the way, that doesn't even count the enormous cost, again, in those external externalities, yeah. in the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. You talk about a three-tiered food system. Yes. Talk to me about that. Okay. I realize that not everybody is going to run right out as a result of reading my book and just start up their garden and live off their garden, right? Yeah, but you should. I'm going to should <laughs> on everybody. Everybody should have a garden. Yes, they should. Yes, they should. And I've done the research and I found that we have something like 45 million, well, it's about 43 million acres of lawn in this country, most of which isn't used for anything except just looking at it. And, 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 and consuming chemicals. That's right. And the possibility, okay, the capacity is there many times over to grow enough food on unused lawn to feed everybody in the country. But that's not going to happen. Okay. We're just not going to jump there. I'm not stupid. You know? So, and the other thing is I do very much appreciate any kind of local farms. The thing is those farms by themselves have been at about 1% of food production. And I don't see that increasing very much. Okay? Mm -hmm. So put all that together. And besides which, not all of the industrial food system needs to be just thrown away. It needs to be sustainableized. So that's why I say what we really need, what would be really good is to have a three-tiered food system anchored by home gardens. That's backed up by local 
food systems, the farmers markets, the CSAs, the, the urban farms, all of those types of local things, okay? So sometimes called the community, community food networks, okay? All of those types of things. And then another tier that backs up that one, which is sustainableized remnants of the industrial food system, okay? So what this would do is it would provide the country with a lot of national security that's much needed that we don't have now. Catastrophic climate change events, the shaky global supply chain. Did you notice in the, in the news just today, another container ship from Ever Given ran aground. This time it was somewhere in the US. Okay, Another wow. one of those huge container ships. That's just one little example. Notice how much inflation there is today, especially in food. For all of those reasons, it's really a matter of national security for people to start home gardens or to expand the gardens they already have. And that is happening, by the way, big time. Yeah, It is happening already anyway. The National Gardening Association now says that almost half of all households do have a home food garden of some kind. The only thing is they don't grow very much. But how much? We don't know because the, the USDA doesn't keep track of it. They're just not interested. Mm -hmm. By the way, I want to throw in one thing here. Also, since I wrote, wrote the book, I have found that the famous dacha gardens in Russia, the household gardens, uh -huh. produce about half of all Russia's food on just 2 to 3% of its agricultural land. Wow. And they've been doing that for centuries, okay? Back before the czars, you know, way before, you know, the Soviet Union and so forth. They've been doing that. What that demonstrates is that it is possible to ramp it up to mass production. We're not just talking about little you know, dinky hobby gardens in the backyard. It can be very, very effectively ramped up to mass production. So well, I, while I was at, so I, I went back to school late in life, ended up at Arizona State University getting a bachelor's degree. And while I was doing my bachelor's degree, this was like 99 to 2004, I actually farmed my front yard and went to the farmer's. So, and I was eating some of that. And I went to the farmer's market and every week and you know i'd walk away with two or three hundred dollars and then anything i had left over i took to a restaurant that a friend of mine owned and i gave it to her and she fed me lunch mm -hmm. yeah it's that simple yeah that's kind of you're 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 joining the first two parts of my proposed yeah. three tiers right there your own local that is your backyard yep. with the local system okay and i assume that during all of that time you did have at least some industrial food products right oh yeah yeah See? So you've got all three of them right there. Yeah. So how big each one of those is, I don't know. But I do know that we're about to, we're in the early stages of a really big increase in backyard or front yard food production. Yep. Okay. What you, how fast it will evolve, I don't know. But this is what I'm proposing. So you don't, everybody have, not everybody has to go out and start gardening. But boy, the more you do it, the more benefits you get assuming you do it the right way. What's the right way? Well, first of all, do it with the anticipation of enjoying it, not forcing yourself. Mm -hmm. And of course, you, you need if you don't know how to do it, you, you need to get some education. You need to get somebody to show you. There's lots of course, books and articles and online instruction. At Urban Farm U, we best, have classes on that. Best is if you can get somebody to show you in person. Yep. And then only do what you are capable of doing to start with, especially, 
without undue stress and strain. It has to be enjoyable every step of the way. Amen. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Forget right. it. Just go to the grocery store. <laughs> but you can do it. It's enjoyable. And you get so far much more out of it than you do depending on 100% of your food from the grocery store. Yeah. Well, and you know, one thing we haven't even touched on is the <laughs> supply chain issues when it came to the food system in 2020 with COVID, number one. And with that massive storm in Texas, number two, when the, you know the grocery store shelves were just empty. That's right. We didn't have another choice. It was just gone. That's right. That's why I say in the book, instead of when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping, it's <laughs> when the going gets tough, the tough start planting. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. And again, the name of your book is Just Grow It Yourself, Home Gardens Outshine the Industrial Food System. Where can we find that at? Oh, Amazon has it. Barnes and Noble has it. Costco has it. You know, okay. there are a number of outlets out there. Nice, nice. I don't nice, know if nice. any bookstores are stocking it yet, but it's it's easily available. They will. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Okay, I will do the one that's most pertinent to our story here, which is for years teaching environmental science and then sustainability. When I talked about the agricultural revolution and so forth, I said, well, the great thing about it is it makes so efficient use of energy that mm. we can now produce food with a whole lot less energy than we could back when people were doing hunting and gathering or in the early stages of agriculture. That was a failure because I was telling my students a big lie. It was not true. But had it not been for COVID, and for me doing the extra research, I wouldn't have known that. So I did stop, well, actually I stopped teaching before I made this discovery, okay? But I just gave a lecture on this and I did mention that it's not that way, okay? Industrial food is actually far more energy intensive per pound of food consumed than home gardens, far, far, far more Mm -hmm. energy intensive. That is, of course, exactly the opposite of the story we're told in the media every day, the story we're told by the industry, by academia. And that's why it's so hard for people to absorb. It is just really difficult. So that's why I wrote that article, The Evidence, and just introduced it piece by piece by piece to make it a little bit easier to actually come to the conclusion that it's true, because it is true. But when you make it as one big statement right up front, it's too much. It just bounces off people like a ping pong ball off a wall. You know, it just, it's too much. So you've got to get used to the idea a little bit at a time. And that great flow chart from the University of Michigan, that food flow chart, I was so glad to see that because it shows it, you know, it shows it. it. And then getting that information about the incredibly efficient home household garden food production in Russia, half of its food on two to three percent of its agricultural land. Yeah. So you put those kinds of things together and you thought, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Maybe. <laughs> right. Plus the food tastes better. The food does usually taste better, yes. What do you consider your biggest success? Well, when I first got here, there was no, that is to MIU, there was no environmental science program. So I started one up. And then that gradually 
morphed into the first four-year degree program in sustainable living. So that program was a big success in itself. But I would say nice. my single biggest success was designing, fundraising, and getting built a sustainable, the Sustainable Living Center, which is a very avant-garde environmental building here on the campus, which is much more ambitious than any, any environmental building I know of anywhere. Okay. It's not that big, but it's big enough to house a number of classrooms and offices and so forth. That was an amazing achievement. That was an amazing success. Wow, cool. And what drives you? I would say that it's just so exciting to have discovered this, okay? to have discovered this, and that it holds such incredible potential. It's creating a new food system that mm -hmm. is actually different from what even most sustainable agriculture advocates push. It goes even further than they do. And what's more, it's feasible so much more easily, so much quicker than what most sustainable food and sustainable agriculture advocates are talking about. It is simply amazing. It's much easier to implement than yeah. starting up a vast, you know, network Number. of yep. small guard of small farms and so forth. That is very difficult to do. And I didn't have time to mention it to you, but on an online site called The Counter, there's this nice article about a woman who went out to prove that small farms are really the future of food. And she found that she could not do it. Okay? Most of those farms could not compete. And the reason they can't compete is because even though they do things generally much more sustainably, much more responsibly, their costs keep the cost of their food well above that of what's available from commercial food. Mm -hmm. And so people just get the lower cost. Now, some people will pay a little bit more for organic, but not enough to sustain most of these farms. She couldn't yeah. do it. Okay. So do an end run around that too. So I'm doing an end run, not only around industrial agriculture, but even around local farms, do an end run around that, go back to home gardens. There's a reason that we have victory gardens springing up every time there's a war somewhere and they suddenly have to have a lot of food very quickly and cheaply and easily get people to grow it themselves. Yeah. You know, it's so much more efficient. Wow. Industry doesn't want you to believe that, but it's right. true. Yeah. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, I've been teaching sustainability for quite a long time and I have several favorites, but the latest is one called Transition Engineering by Susan Crumdike. She's an engineer primarily, extremely bright. She visited our operations here in Fairfield, Iowa, a few, well, a couple of months ago, actually several months ago. And uh, she's a, just a brilliant engineer. And she comes at the whole sustainability revolution from a truly engineering operation or, or viewpoint, which I can mm -hmm relate to because I come from a family of engineers. I was the first one to be something else. Okay? But it's a really, really fascinating and extremely well thought out book. So that's not about agriculture per se or food per se, but it includes that. Okay? Anyway, that's my latest favorite sustainability book. Have you got a second one? Second one I would call Eco-Justice Education. Really, really outstanding. And my third one would be A Systems View of Life by Fritjof Capra and Luigi. 
oh, I just recently heard about that book yep. from somebody else. Wow. Okay, cool. I mean, the reason I asked this question in the podcast is because I'm always looking for what's what's next for me. So this is as much for me as it is for the listeners. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Start a garden or expand the gardens you have. If you don't have a sunny spot, look around the neighborhood for a community garden. Ask a friend if you can use part of their lawn. Just start it up. I believe it's going to become more and more necessary as we go on, because I believe we're going to have quite a bit of crisis coming up with all of the climate change events, more and more of those every year. Yep. And food prices going way up. We, have, we didn't even touch on the food insecure. You know, right. Something like 15 to 20 percent of our population that despite government assistance still cannot get enough to eat. Yes. And I'm sure with COVID, that's gone up considerably. I saw a news piece maybe 20 years ago on the Today Show about this family. And there were four generations living in this house and they were going hungry and they had this beautiful yard all the way around them. And it's like I was standing screaming at the at the TV plant a garden. Yes. Yes. And I don't know why we don't, that's just not like a natural thing for people to think. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not, let's put it this way. It's not as much a part of our culture now growing Mm -hmm. your own food as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Visiting my grandmother in Eastern North Carolina, she had a garden in her backyard and so did most of her neighbors. Yeah. On the other hand, quietly, something like close to half of uh, all households do have a, ho- a home garden now. They just don't grow very much in it. Yeah. Right. So nice. Well, yeah, when I was so- in Europe, I was in Europe twice in the past two decades. I was in Italy and I was in Croatia, both time for about three weeks each. And the striking thing for me there was when I walked neighborhoods, every single yard had a garden in it. Uh, you mean a food garden? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah everybody was growing food there and it's like time to wake up kids yep well i believe it will happen so yes that's my advice start a garden you'll get so much more out of it assuming you do it the right way than just the food itself and the food itself is quite an accomplishment amen to that well thank you so much for joining us on the show today david it was such a pleasure and how can we uh, find you let's start with your website justgrowityourself.com and your book's available probably on that website. And the book is available. You can find it from the website. Okay. Yes, but it's on Amazon. Just just, just Google Just Grow It Yourself and you'll find it. Be sure you put Just Grow It Yourself. If you do Grow It Yourself, you'll get another book. Okay, Okay. cool. Just Grow It Yourself. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And if somebody wanted to contact you? Oh, I would say use the contact page on the website, justgrowityourself.com. Excellent. Well, once again, thank you, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash just grow it yourself. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed 
or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.